Reading and writing are doomed. Literacy as we know it, it's over. Welcome to the post-literate future. This is Beyond Literacy Radio. Beyond Literacy Radio explores the possibility of a post-literate future where reading and writing have been replaced or displaced by something more profound and advantageous. Beyond Literacy Radio, exploring a post-literate future. At least 60 people have reportedly died. There is no roadmap. I have an Irish there's one country that he won't talk about. No, can't talk about. The home of the blue-collar worker and the great automobile. We have to, and I'm We often refer to our current society as the information society. Digital technologies have enabled us to produce and store more information than ever before. 2.7 zettabytes to be specific. Today, we have access to information from all over the planet, and sometimes even beyond, at the click of a mouse. This must mean we're the most informed generation ever, right? And as we've all been told... It's great to learn, because knowledge is power! But is it? I think most of us can agree that at a base level, this is true. Knowledge empowers us, as individuals and as a society, to make choices that affect our lives and shape the world we live in. In democracies, our entire governmental system depends on an informed citizenry. Knowledge allows us to form opinions, to think critically, to grow. To borrow a term from the era of reason itself, knowledge enlightens us. It is a fundamental part of what makes us human. But what if knowledge also holds us back? Is it possible that we have reached a point where we now know too much? What if the plethora of reports, opinions, news updates, etc., have actually made us less able to feel adequately informed on any given topic? What if the information we take in is so overwhelming that the weight of it compromises our sense of individual autonomy? This week on Beyond Literacy, we're exploring the current state of information overload. I'm Kelly, and in this episode, we're going to look at three different reactions people have when they feel there is just too much. The scale and complexity of issues facing society seems to be growing with the amount of information we amass. It often leaves us feeling pessimistic, jaded, defeated. In the face of global climate change, corporate greed, government spying, and wars with a thin veil of legitimacy, perhaps ignorance really is bliss. I decided to ask a few friends. Is there anything you wish you didn't know? I wish I didn't know about WebMD. Every time I consult the website, I end up having cancer. The more I learn about any kind of security, the more paranoid I get. I recently started researching lockpicking, it took me only a couple of hours to learn how to pick simple locks. Knowing that information is so easy to find, I feel a lot less safe in my apartment. Like, I'm gonna have to put like four locks on my front door now. I wish I never read the document from the FDA specifying the allotted amounts of bugs and foreign material that's allowed in our food. It made me never want to eat again. I wish I didn't know what hot dogs were made of. The illusion of free will. I wish I'd never been interested in determinism. It's depressing. I wish I didn't know about how infinite the universe is. If nobody knew about space, I like to imagine we'd be better at taking care of our own planet. I wish I didn't know about sleep paralysis. Now I'm terrified to go to bed. So, if there's too much information and it's beginning to paralyze us, what do we do? In the next three segments, we are going to hear from Shadi, Portia, and Lauren about three different strategies for coping with information overload. Jack. 
Hi, I'm Shadi, and in this segment of episode four, Too Much Information, I'll be talking about organizing it. How do we process the information overload we're bombarded with on a daily basis? We're forced to get organized so we can process and manage it. How we approach the battle to organize and to make sense of the information overload is subjective preference. I spoke to two people about their battle with organizing information and how they sift through. Lisa, an actress, spoke about the challenge to organize the information overload amidst the feelings it brings up, resentment, chaos, stress, anxiety. When you're hit with a lot of information, um, I like the idea of paper. The only issue is because there's such a mass amount and it's like you have to go through it and pare it down to what suits me, let's say, it becomes a challenge. Like It becomes like I'm studying to pare down and compartmentalize all the information I might need for something. And it just becomes scattered because it's like certain sections I prefer more organized than others, but because there's so much available stimuli, I find that I become stagnant and a little, like, lost. It seems like an overwhelming, like, a hoarder's house. It's like there's so much information, and only a certain amount of people know how to navigate. And if you don't, like, if you haven't been trained, I would say, on how to navigate through, you obviously, there's so easily you can get lost or things that catch your eye and, like, you lose a half an hour wondering about, like, do I buy these pair of shoes when it's like that wasn't the thing you were focused on in the first place. So I find myself really scattered and a lot of times I find myself almost a little resentful. Like, how can this give me so much but... Um, have no direction with it. What happens when someone else is organizing your information for you? In our tech-heavy society, digital literacy is a skill that helps us manage information. Without this skill, our access to information would be greatly hindered in this day and age where media and the internet reign. One of my interviewees is a journalist at the CBC and originally from Haiti. This is what she has to say about our problem of managing information overload. In Haiti, for example, where a lot of people can't read, they don't have access to information as easily, obviously, because a lot of information is distributed in, you know, in the form of books or articles and whatnot. And I always thought it was unfair that those people had to rely on someone else to tell them what a book says or to give them information about their health or their government or, you know, uh, anything that relates to their day-to-day lives. There's a reason why in the book Animal Farm um, things really start to go downhill when uh, the animals can't read their, like, constitution that they have put up on the side of the barn or whatever it was and uh, it starts to change and their rights start to be taken away one by one but they can't tell because they don't they don't have access to that information at the end of the day information is is power being able to find out for yourself is very empowering whether you're finding out something about your health whether you're finding out something about what your government wants to do or plans to do, um, 
or whether you're finding out something about what's on the menu at a restaurant, <laughs> it's information is definitely power. So in the in the internet age or whatever, yes, we have a new problem now of managing too much information, but I think that that's a good problem to have. Organizing and sense-making of information is a modern challenge we face today. But doesn't it place us in a stronger and more informed position from which to make choices in life? Doubling in size every 24 months, the internet proliferates data faster than we could ever imagine. How do we make sense of this massive information, distinguish what is real from the malarkey? Most of us use Google to navigate this sea of information, but what if you rejected it? In organizing the internet, Google privileges some sources over others, filtering knowledge as they see fit. So far, we've discussed organizing information as a means to deal with it. My name is Portia, and I'm examining people who are able to make information work for them. Hackers. Thankfully, I didn't have to go too far afield to find one. I just had to go to my parents' house for Thanksgiving dinner. You know, I do social justice activism as well as messing around with electronics. And uh, I might want to do some research about a corporation which I am planning a, you know, a campaign against without, you know, them knowing that it is me. That's my brother Nicholas. He's been taking apart computers for as long as I can remember. So uh, I'm part of a club in Kensington Market in Toronto on Baldwin Street called HackLab.to, and we are a, a hacker space or a maker space, and that just means that we're a bunch of people who are enthusiastic about technology. So information and access to information and the way that the internet affects uh, the world and the way that technology affects the world is actually something that we talk about quite a lot. I've heard a lot about the deep web, which is a part of the internet which can't be searched or cataloged with search engines. Can you tell me about that? The deep web is a thing that exists, even though it's a little bit mythical. The deep web is essentially the part of the internet which is difficult to access or is not readily available. Can you give me an example? There is a tool called Tor, T-O-R stands for the onion router, and Tor allows you to browse the internet relatively anonymously. Why might you want to browse the internet anonymously? I might want to research something which is, um, you know, an unpopular topic. And uh, I might want to do some research about terrorism or, you know, something which might look a little bit odd from an outside party uh, if they were looking and not having the context that I have. Nicholas went on to explain that Tor allows you to access something called Tor Hidden Services. This is part of the deep web that is really positive, because if you want to post something on the internet, say if you're a whistleblower, you can do so without fear of being caught. Unless you're an extremely high-value target, the NSA or other government agencies don't even try. And even then, they're not likely to track you down. I wanted to finish off by talking about the movement on the internet away from the written word with the rise of mediums like Instagram, Tumblr, and Vine. This is, of course, Beyond Literacy Radio. So one of the things about the internet which I think is particularly interesting is that the internet grows. And you talked about this earlier in the interview. So, the, you know, this is significant. So the capacity and the speed on the internet changes. So where before uh, pictures were very data expensive and took time to load and that sort of thing, uh, this is not the case anymore. 
So what does this mean? I am sure that the internet is going to change the way we communicate. Uh, I think it actually may run backwards. Since the internet has allowed us to, you know, collaborate, or that the internet has allowed us to create apps like, uh, web apps like Instagram and whatnot, um, I definitely see the internet affecting our language and making it more visual simply because it allows people to create these things that they were never able to create before. Do you have any idea what this could mean for the future and how humans communicate? I, I don't think there's any way to analyze this and to derive any sort of meaning or any sort of like underlying conclusion about humans from this, other than that we like to communicate. But the medium that we communicate with is changing so rapidly. And there is something about not being able to predict in the future how we're going to communicate and what mediums will be preferred that really excites me. Like, you know, if we are collectively all feeding into this, what is our collective mind doing? Like, why is it that we feel the way we do about the need to communicate in certain ways rather than others? It almost sounds like if we continue down the road we're on right now, textual information can disappear from our collective consciousness. Or you could say, delete itself. Hi, I'm Lauren, and in this segment of episode 4, Too Much Information, I'm going to be discussing the role that deleting plays in the context of too much information. As long as people have been recording information, we've been looking for ways to get rid of it, as a way of managing the sheer volume of recorded ephemera and knowledge that we have to deal with once we put down, in words, some piece of content. Over time, as technology has changed, our methods of destruction have changed too. In the past, we've broken, burned, and shredded the physical entities that we've recorded information on or in. Now, in what is commonly called the digital age, we often destroy information by deleting it. As we consider what a post-literate world might look like and how we might get there, it appears quite important to start practically thinking about how we'll go from way too much recorded information to zero recorded information. To better understand what strategy of deleting we might use to move into a post-literate world, I went to talk to someone whose job continuously positions them squarely between keep or delete, an archivist. Traditionally, it is the job of an archivist to identify, preserve, and make available for use records of enduring value. However, archivists can't and don't keep everything that comes into their archive. Instead, they must constantly appraise and delete their collection. In this way, Archivists appear to be, in some ways, seasoned deleters. So, I went out to speak to one to see if they might be able to offer us an effective strategy for deleting, and to see if their deleting strategy might help us move into a post-literate world, and to see if they think such a world is the answer to too much information. So, as an archivist, what is your stance on deleting information? I am all for it. I love it. It's my favorite part of the job is purging. And nobody can really understand that because they think of archivists as being hoarders or collectors. And I'm the complete opposite. And in fact, my husband is the complete opposite to me. So I often start purging his material on his behalf, which, you know, frustrates him because he likes the clutter. So, um, but I think retaining as little information as is necessary in your life is actually very freeing. Okay. And... Do you think that this type of archival strategy for deleting information, purging it, 
might be harnessed in the future by society to move into or toward a post-literate societal moment and culture? Um, unlikely. So even if we all decided en masse that this is what we were going to do, individual idiosyncrasies would come into play. And so that would sort of put a halt to any, you know, overarching plan. There are just so many, you know, individual aspects of one's life within those mass situations. That said, I think there are processes that people sort of adapt collectively. It sounds like you're kind of skeptical of our ability as a collective society to do away with literally delete, in a way, what some call the information glut that presently characterizes our literacy-intensive society. With this in mind, do you think that a post-literate world is the answer to too much information? Um, no, because information comes at us in, a, in various forms. It's not just what is written. It's what is oral, what is audible, what is visual outside of the written word. Information takes many forms, and the written word is just one of those forms. So getting rid of one aspect of that would not necessarily, I mean, it would be replaced in some other way, I think, because we have the urge to communicate. That's what human beings do. We communicate with one another. And so there's always going to be some way of amassing information, whether written or not. So we'll always have too much information. (laughs) Unfortunately, yes. This discussion about deleting was fascinating because it seemed to indicate that deleting information might not actually be the answer to too much information or a way to reach or embrace a post-literate society. With this in mind, maybe we need to approach our information glut and this issue of too much information from an entirely different vantage point. Okay. Mm, I don't know. What else is there? Where are you going with this, Lauren? What if we went in the exact opposite direction? away from trying to limit, manage, manipulate, or erase information, as we've explored in this podcast. Instead, what if we could just remember everything? Beyond Literacy Radio is a thought experiment conducted by a team of graduate students at the iSchool of the University of Toronto. I'm Michael Ridley, the instructor in the course. For more information and to participate in the dialogue, go to beyondliteracyradio.com and join the conversation on Twitter at Beyond Literacy.